Hello and welcome to the Herb Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. We're something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. We have no sponsors and we carry our podcasts without advertising. If you'd like to support a truly independent voice, will you consider making a small donation? Details at ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. My guest today is the Kurdish writer Choman Hardy. Choman is the founder and director of the Center for Gender and Development Studies at the American University of Iraq, Suleimani. Her research and teaching interests include poetry, feminist literature, feminist literary criticism, gender and genocide, masculinity, symbolic reparation, and women's activism. Already a well-established poet, Choman has just published her first novel, Whispering Walls. She's speaking to me today from Suleimani in Iraqi Kurdistan. Choman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Whispering Walls is your debut novel. You've already made your mark as a poet, so I'm just wondering, what was the motivation to move into fiction? I have this tendency in my poetry to return to the same subjects, and um, it seemed like very many unresolved issues that I kept writing about, uh, first of all. So I felt that I needed a bigger canvas to deal with them, issues with memory and violence and how our life decades after the violence has ended is still contaminated by what happened in the past and how I keep returning to this theme. And I I just felt that maybe a novel will give me the space to explore in detail. And, um, you know, in, in poems, you get little snapshots of moments but I wanted to build a much more complex picture of of memory and violence and and recovery and trauma. So it felt like the right move. So it was almost like a sense of liberation, if you will, that you could open this up, the constraints of of the poetic format didn't give you the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I have tried in the past, um, if you may be familiar with my work in my second poetry collection in English, considering the woman, I have a sequence of poems called the Enfal. And what I did in that sequence, I I tried to build a more complex picture by um, having 13 poems. The first and the last poems are written from the point of view of the researcher. First, very naively thinking she can do it all and she knows it all. And finally, completely devastated. But in between these two, I had 11 survivors telling their stories, and these stories really become the knowledge that poisons the optimism of the researcher and her faith in, you know, good endings and and that good will evil survive, you know, survive evil and so on. So I I tried to do that through poetry, but still, I felt that I I needed more. I needed layers of different characters and how... Another thing I'm very fascinated by is how even within the same family, we each deal with our past very differently and we take different, you know, roots at the end of what we've experienced. And and sometimes we even remember certain things and not others, which, you know, is very interesting because um, the same event told, told from different family mem- members' perspectives can look very different. And so I, so I wanted to do that, how the same event within the same family could have different repercussions how there are layered levels of trauma, uh, and how we each try to find our own way of coping and dealing and surviving these situations. Mm. Well, as you say, Whispering Walls is a story of a family 
two siblings who live in the diaspora in the UK, the third who stays in Iraqi Kurdistan, and, and a fourth sibling, and I don't want to give the plot away, but who has died, but in death is very much alive in the novel. And, and woven into their stories is the story of Kurdistan from the end of the Iran-Iraq Iraq war, and you mentioned the unfall, to the days immediately before the war of 2003. Why did you choose that time frame? So there are, in fact, originally there were five siblings. Two of them are now dead. Uh, and, you know, uh, they they are only present through the memories and recollections of their siblings. But I felt that I lived through the 2003 invasion, right? So I was based in London at the time. Um, it was a very heated up environment where the majority of the world uh, was against the war. A small minority of people were for the war. Many of them came from the country itself, from Iraq, because they had lived through the dictatorship. Um, but I felt that there was a third perspective, and that was the in-between people, the people who somehow wanted the war, but were worried about the way it was going to be done. Uh, and this, the in-between the yes and no, this gray area was not represented at all during the, you know, uh, media coverage and discussions that happened in the lead up to the 2003 war. So I wanted to bring that perspective in, uh, that gray area. But I also, it felt like the right time because I think most of us who came from the country were very much, because of all the scrutiny that was on Iraq at the time and because of you know, the news coverage of the gas attacks, of the mass graves, of the uprisings, of the Shiite South and the Kurdish North, we were reliving some of those traumas. We were re-experiencing, you know, and uh, it, many people who didn't come from the country also felt very strongly about it. But I, I think they, many didn't understand how for us it was a very testing time. And it was also a time, you know that, right, because, um, past traumas, they they can go to sleep. Uh, they can so you can cope with them, you can build an ordinary life and succeed and be happy. But when something else, uh, another major catastrophe happens or something that tips the balance, they resurface. So I felt that the war, the lead up to the war was a very good time for many of our past traumas and repressed pain to resurface and the story to unfold. And and we should tell our listeners uh, the Anfal, just just explain what that was, because it happens just after the end of the Iran-Iraq war in the late 80s. So it happened between February and September 1988. In fact, the Iraq-Iran war came to an end in August 1988. So the genocide campaign, the Anfal campaign, um, started when the war was still going on and continued a month after the ceasefire. And this was a series of eight military attacks which targeted the Kurdish countryside, in particular villages on the borders of Turkey and Iran. Um, this is where the Kurdish resistance was based, and um, the revolution uh, was in a way fed from these villages and, and supported by these villages, sometimes not even by choice. These villages were in an area named by the government prohibited for security reasons. So the government had withdrawn all of its services, hospitals, uh, school teachers, schooling, administration, and so on. And in a way, the Kurdish revolution or the Kurdish resistance at the time, people who had been uh, doctors or you know teachers or administrators in the past 
filled in the gap and worked in these villages and provided these services, ad hoc services, not um, fully efficient, but a replacement at least. And so um, these villages, in a way, were punished for their support to the revolution. So each attack um, started with a extensive gassing, except from the areas which was flatland and the, the military, the Iraqi military would have been exposed to the gas attacks as well, like the Girmian region near Kirkuk, which is very flat. The mountainous areas were all gassed the first stage, and then um, the army sieged each region and the civilians only had one way out where they were greeted by the Kurdish mercenaries and the Iraqi army. And um, there, there were many transportation centers, processing centers. So initially, the men and teenage boys were taken away. And then the elderly people were separated from the women and children. And so they were sent to different prisons. Some of the families also were sent to the mass graves. So the men and teenage boys were ex executed immediately within days. Uh, but some of the families also um, had the same fate and ended up in mass graves in the western south of Iraq. So this went on for, um, as I mentioned, about seven and a half months uh, or six and a half months uh, at the end of 1988. It ended with a September general amnesty uh, where those in prison were released and anyone who had fled to Iran and Turkey was allowed to return. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the characters in the novel, one of the, the deceased characters, Kawa, was, was killed in uh, fighting against Saddam's troops and, and again, very much figures into the story of the family. But, but what struck me particularly was the strength of the female characters in your novel. And, I, and I'm not surprised at that, given, you know, your poetry and your position in terms of feminism. But the issues that the women in Whispering Walls have to deal with, I mean, they're universal, aren't they, in many ways, repression by the patriarchy, the denial of rights, uh, the women deal in different ways with the challenges. But as I said, they all come across as strong and powerful and prepared to challenge, sometimes at great cost. Can you talk a little bit about, about the women, what motivates them, but also what motivated you to create them? So the stereotypical image of women in the Middle East uh, is that they're voiceless, that they are oppressed, that they are covered up, you know, and, and they have no power. And men are at the best kind, but controlling, at the worst, violent and murderous. So I really wanted to complicate that picture, first of all, because, I mean, you know, in, in places where a group does not have power, it does not mean that they have no agency. People always find a way to have power. Of course, in extreme situations, it becomes more difficult. But within communities like ours, it's a very heterogeneous community where women find ways to have power. Sometimes they do it. You know, my mother's generation would have done it through coaxing men into making the right decisions, uh, manipulating men, seducing men, you know, kindly uh, persuading men to take the decisions they wanted. But it can also happen by open, rebellious women standing against patriarchy. And some of the women in the novel, in particular Lana, who's had the opportunity to live in London and who's gone through the experience of losing her sister to a patriarchal system, she she's not only an ordinary woman who just tries to do her best, she, she's very much aware of the power dynamics, she really wants to problematize it. But so many other women, as you said in the novel, like um, the wife of Gera, one of the characters, she has this tendency where 
Whenever she tells a childhood story to her son, she tries to change the characters and give the women or the girls in the story some more, uh, a different perspective or a different role. They're very much aware of how patriarchy is not just the basic things that we see, um, violence, but also structurally men being dominant in all the positions of power, but it's also reflected in daily experiences, in the way food is divided, in the way um, the best seats are always given to men, in the way uh, men have a lot more respect when they speak, people listen to them and so on. So they're very much aware of the daily weaving of patriarchy in their lives. And they try to also tell the men in their lives about how it works. Some of them, of course, are more receptive than others. Um, but it's, I wanted to show that, you know, women are not passive victims. Some are victims of violence and obviously like one of the characters voice is taken away from her but her voice is carried through the other woman in in the novel um, but majority of them are trying to either survive patriarchy fight patriarchy cope with patriarchy or just live a dignified life within the framework and these complex experiences uh, i hope is represented in the way the women are portrayed oh indeed indeed they are and i'm just wondering Truman, was Whispering Walls, a difficult novel to write, and 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 what was the process? Are you the sort of writer who is very disciplined in their approach? You know, five pages a day, ten pages a day, or do you wait for the muse to hit you and then go right? I've got to get it down right now. How how does it work for you? Neither, actually, it's a very good question. So I am not a five page a day writer at all, simply because. My day is packed with so many other things. I sometimes don't have, um, don't find the time to write for weeks. Uh, but I'm neither the one who, you know, waits for inspiration to struck as well. I do try to make time, structurally make myself take time off, go somewhere, have a few days where I can focus. Because in particular with writing a novel, it's very difficult to have an hour here, an hour there. What I found most useful was when I had a stretch of few days where I could sit down and live in that world of the novel and have all the characters in my mind and close um, to the point where I could feel them. Uh, I've had days where, you know, I mean, the, the novel was written uh, over the span of 20 years. I haven't been working on it every year. Of course, there were years when I didn't even go back to it. But it, it's been a continuous developing, editing, um, working and uh, growing the story and the narrative. And there were days where, you know, I would be eating my food and uh, I would feel Lana close by, you know, or I would be uh, in a wake and I would think of Hiwa by my side. The characters became a real part of my daily lives simply because um, I also find them they're not just fictional characters, in fact. I mean, each of them could be a person living and they represent many others like themselves. So they were very real to me. You know, I, I had um, once, um, I was going to this wedding in, in France and I didn't have anything to wear. And a friend of mine from Scotland had this uh, dress by her grandmother, uh, which was from the 1920s, and she lent it to me. So I wore this dress to the party. And when I was dancing, I really thought of Sozi, the wife of Hiwa, wearing this dress. And that's how the wedding scene in, in the novel came about, because up to that moment where I saw Sozi wearing that dress, she was a secondary character. 
she wasn't real. She hadn't materialized. But with that dress and that story, that scene in the uh, in the wedding uh, where they first meet, she became a real person. So um, it has been evolving over a long time. And uh, one thing that um, I like about myself, I guess, is that I do not easily give up on projects. So the, the novel, you know, uh, several agents didn't even respond to me when I contacted them. Publishers do not receive, you know, direct submissions. They want you to be represented by an agent. So there were rejections and setbacks. And But I knew this is a good story. And I would I knew that it would see the day, the light of day. And I continued pushing for it until the opportunity came to publish it. I'm fascinated by the thought that you've lived with these characters over, over a 20-year period and that there are moments where they become absolutely real to you and you as you said, when with with the dress at the uh, at the wedding, suddenly that that character comes alive, and I think it's a very exciting way to write. Can can I ask you about the poetry when you're writing the novel? Did the poetry sometimes get in the way? I mean, I asked. I, I'm asking that question because I just thought there are moments in in Whispering Walls that just were so poetic they they could have been uh, you know published as a poem. This this one paragraph, you just allow me to read it. Lana knew too well about walls of division and fragmentation that amputate lands and nations, detaching them from a part of themselves, making them bleed, leaving them incomplete. She knew about walls of denial and forgetfulness, depriving people of learning from their past, of not repeating the same mistakes, of not being trapped in a vicious circle. She knew about walls of fear, immobilizing people and not allowing them to take new risks, she knew about walls of apathy, preventing people from responding appropriately to crisis, injustice, and tragedy. She knew about walls of ignorance and walls of self-deception that left people less accomplished, less than a smooth history with a beginning and an end. And I just read that paragraph and I thought that encapsulates so many things about physical walls. The wall, for example, that separates Palestinians, the wall that that cut Berlin in half, the walls in, 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 in Belfast, and those psychological walls that we all build. I mean, it just seemed to me to be absolutely, you know, in a very precise and tight and poetic way, delivered so much to me within the context of the novel. So perhaps the poetry wasn't a hindrance at all. No, no, I think, I think not. I think, I mean, you know, poets are biased of course and they would tell you poets can write novels and novelists can write poets uh, I, I don't agree with that but um, poetry really is about sensitivity to language uh, to sounds to images to ideas and also have a very sharp sense of editing you know I mean as a poet you really work very hard on editing and different versions and and the way it sounds the way it looks uh the images and the nuanced word you know nuances of different words that you use you've got to be very sensitive to these things and any kind of sensitivity towards language on such a level is a very good tool for you to have as a novelist so i think poets have good practice some novelists also do i mean some um, there are other novelists who are i mean you know bernadine everisto i think her first novel was was all rhyming couplets right so there are other writers who've experienced with using poetry in their fiction uh, and i think it can be very exciting i don't see it as a hindrance you're listening to the herb digest podcast with me william law 
and the Kurdish writer Choman Hardy. Our podcasts have no sponsors and no advertising. We are a truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you like to support that voice? If the answer is yes, please consider making a small donation. Details at ArabDigest.org. As you mentioned, you spent many years in the UK, but you went back to Iraqi Kurdistan in 2014 to take up a position at the American University of Iraq in Suleimani, and you set up a gender studies program in 2015, one of only two, I believe, in Iraq at the time. What was coming back after being away for all those years? Was that a difficult decision for you? Well, I had been, you know, when I did my postdoc research about the Anfal survivors, the genocide survivors of 1988, I spent a lot of time doing fieldwork in Kurdistan. So I visited, um, visit, you know, small towns and villages from the border of Turkey down to the border of Iran and further south towards Kirkuk. And I, when I was doing the data collection, I also provided some lectures and workshops and seminars and, and worked with young people. Um, and I really much realized that this is where I need to be. Um, because even when I was living in the UK in the last years, I was very much in, uh, concerned about the situation back home and in particular women's rights uh, and trying, you know, we worked with other uh, women at the time, Kurdish women who lived in London. We established this organization that we all worked in voluntarily and we were trying to connect the diaspora with back home. When I when I was doing my field work at home, I realized that if I want to become more effective, I really should come home because that's where my work is. I can, in particular, I'm, I, th I think I'm a good teacher. It, it runs in the family. So my father was a teacher. My sister was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. Um, I think I'm good at explaining difficult concepts and I really love it. In fact, one of my best moments is when I'm in the classroom when I explain a theoretical thing and I see students applying it to their daily lives, that gives me a thrill. So I was very interested in coming back and working uh, in the education sector, in particular, you know, higher education and, and um, university. So this opportunity came up and um, I was actually hired in the English department uh, because of my track record as a writer and translator. But then, of course, my passion was always feminism as well. So I started developing courses uh, that were feminist uh, and, you know, gender studies, gender related, and, and established the center. And gradually we established, we initiated the first gender minor in Iraq in 2017, three years after my return. So this has been a journey of seeing that, you know, I mean, if I'm not in the UK, there are thousands of wonderful people who are doing amazing stuff. It's not going to miss me. But I felt that if I'm not here, some things will probably not be done. And uh, I am so glad I came home and I was able to do the things. In a way, I, I, I feel that at times I've been living my dream, really, and fulfilling the things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But you and the Gender Studies Program have come under sustained attack from conservative Islamist elements. Can you talk a little bit about that, Chulman? Yes, um, unfortunately... I had not realized that my work has earned me very big enemies, really. And um, uh, here is me going on. And I feel that <laughs> I, I've noticed this a lot. I've never been a member of any political party in the Kurdish community. Uh, I've never worked with these kind of networks where there are conspiracy theories and backstabbing and, and uh, scoring against each other and so on. So I'm, I'm, 
in a way, I came back very naively and uh, very optimistically thinking I can do amazing things happen. And, and I have, in a way, I've made some things happen. But I didn't realize um, how major the backlash will be. You know, I mean, I have worked on women's rights for over 20 years of my life. And establishing the Gender Studies Center was basically to focus on women's rights and, and advance the feminist cause. But of course, I, I also realized because in, in this region, we have a strong activist movement. We have uh, very many good NGOs who are doing service delivery and protection work and representation in the courts and capacity building for women. But the academic discourse on feminism was lagging. It was falling behind because we don't have gender studies. We didn't have them in any of the universities. We now do. And we we didn't have many academics who had, you know, gained experience or knowledge or research in this area. So I felt that we, we can make a difference by um, equipping the activist movement with research analysis, data that would make our activism more strong and more targeted, you know, because you want to see the root causes and you want to see how you can prevent women needing protection. How can you prevent violence? And for that, you need research. But I have realized because of the backlash that it seems like changing laws and providing services and representing women is not seen as dangerous as trying to change the discourse. This discourse that the differences between men and women are biologically and naturally constructed, uh, they are there, they will always be there. Men and women are different. They have different essences. Men are fit for certain things. Women are not and vice versa. And to change that and to push for making visible all the hidden mechanisms of patriarchy, of how socialization, education, the media, religion, culture language, all of these things build and weave gender differences every day. When you try to push for that and make it visible, make these, uh, which were very normalized and accepted as the, the right way, you problematize them, you you complicate the story, and, and you see, you show how many of these differences are socially constructed. Somehow, doing this has shaken many people and uh, really made them unite against gender studies in particular. That's one thing. But of course, you also know that they they now link women's rights with LGBTQ. And this happened with my center when uh, we translated certain resources for uh, UG courses, UG undergraduates for gender and media, uh, law, pedagogy, and social work. We wanted to have these UG courses in mother tongue. Because, you know, my university is private, we study in English, we have access to a lot of academic texts that the public universities here don't because they study in Arabic and in Kurdish. So we translate these courses. We also developed online training for professors who may want to teach them. And as you know, uh, gender studies is very much interdisciplinary. So it talks about women's rights. Of course, that's the main focus, but it also addresses uh, the issue of race, class, disability, and also LGBTQ. So what they did during the backlash was they photoshopped those parts of the articles we translated that were about LGBTQ, and they wove this narrative together that under the name of women's rights, we are trying to promote LGBTQ and we are going against nature, God, and also uh, trying to disintegrate family and so on and so forth. So 
they really, um, they have been weaving through our work uh, or combing through our work. They're finding a bit here, bit there, bit there and constructing the story, which is completely false. And um, because many young people in this community, they go through an education system that does not teach them critical thinking. So they are very vulnerable to manipulation. And coupled with that, they also feel very marginalized. Uh, many of them live in smaller towns that are, you know, high unemployment. Um, so it's very easy to mobilize their anger and, and their vulnerability into a weapon against women's rights activists. And that's what they did. So the majority of the comments and threats and the violence came from young men from these marginalized towns and cities who are actually rightly angry about not having services, not having rights, not having access to resources. And they should, that anger should be directed towards the situation which should change rather than against women's rights activists who are trying to make this community a more fair and inclusive community for men and women. Yeah, and, and you said the on the threats and the online the disinformation campaign and the the distortions and the selective renderings of, of material it, it will have been hard on you, but also hard on on people who who support you. Yes, unfortunately, I mean, um, you know, this campaign we many of us in this region who work in this area we would be targeted every now and then a couple of days maximum 3 days but this last campaign it lasted for 5 weeks it was very well organized because every day these facebook pages and twitter pages would come up with a new thing that they would all share and hundreds of people were sharing them thousands of people were commenting it got to a stage where I was being recognized on the street, where, you know, uh, I was advised to leave the country temporarily. I was receiving a lot of threats and private messages and so on. But also my brothers, who both of whom are writers here, they, after about a week of this, um, they sort of wrote statements in my support, just Facebook posts in my support. And the viciousness of the way they were attacked Photos of us with my family members, um, brothers and sisters, but also with my daughter, with my husband, were shared widely. We were accused of corruption. We were accused of destroying family, destroying religion and going against God and going against the Kurdish nation. So this idea that, you know, these NGOs and academic centers are now receiving funding from the West to destroy us. Well, this this taps into the Kurdish fear of annihilation, you know, um, Kurds as minorities in Iraq, Turkey, Iran, and Syria have had, you know, struggled for their rights. And now this fear of, of not having rights, of being marginalized, of being killed, is being weaponized again against us. And when, in fact, and this is something that I have mentioned several times in my writing since and interviews and so on. I mean, the Kurds here pose no threat to the West. If if the West wants to destroy anyone, it's not us. We've been allies of the West against Daesh, even against the, you know the toppling of the Ba'ath government in two thousand and three. We've never, we don't have the equipment or the financial capacity to be a threat to anyone in the world, right? So this idea that we are somehow being targeted by the West for annihilation is just nonsense. But somehow the machinery of fabricating lies and spreading fear and you know 
weaponizing people's vulnerabilities and people's insecurities and fears and marginalization into weapon against women and against women's rights activists has been a, a very interesting, if if nothing less, uh, thing to observe. But it's co- of course, it's cost many of us a lot. Uh, so in March 2023, uh, about 34 uh, civil society organizations and women's rights organizations got together and um, for International Women's Day, they sort of designed this prize for the first time called the Equality Prize. This is hopefully going to become an annual thing. And I was the first recipient this year, uh, partly for persevering and not leaving. Some people were hoping that I would leave. Some people were worried that I would leave. So in a way, it was about reconnecting the movement, getting together again, uh, turning the page and hopefully starting again. But uh, we all know that things have changed. The escalation has changed certain things. And we need to find a way through this difficult time because um, the disinformation and misinformation has harmed us all. Well, just uh, just in closing, gentlemen, I, I wanted to say that uh, I thought Whispering Walls is, is a brilliant novel. It's a, it was a real page turner for me. I couldn't put it down. And yet at the same time, it's a deep dive into the recent history of the Kurds. And I think that that's not an easy task put those things together to create that 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 family but also to tell that within the context of of a very difficult period in in the life of the Kurds um so let me ask you this that one took 20 years I'm just wondering is there another a novel in in the offing I really hope so I am already thinking about it I mean some people have even asked me will there be a sequel I don't know about that but um there are many things that I still would like to explore. I mean, I spend years, for example, um, looking at and living with the experiences of genocide survivors. And I don't think I've even, you know, there's one character who who sort of touches on this topic, but I haven't even started really considering it in my writing uh, in a serious way. And I think that's that's something that I would really like to write about. In particular, this becomes more urgent when, you know, I mean, this happened in 1988 and some of the survivors of that campaign will, you know, will soon not be in this world anymore. And that story needs to be told. So there are many ideas that I would like to pursue and and many stories that I would like to tell. I always tell people, people think that uh, we are wealthy in, in oil and gas and natural resources. Actually, the thing we are wealthy in is is stories. We have a wealth of untold stories that are amazing, survival stories and uh, strength and resilience and agency in the face of unthinkable violence and, and oppression. So I think I would like to continue telling stories uh, to sum up, basically. Well, well, and uh, I, I certainly hope that you do. And, and I thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Truman. Thank you so much for making this podcast, and uh, I hope the listeners will enjoy it. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the Kurdish writer Choman Hardy. Her debut novel, Whispering Walls, recently published by Afsana Press, is a powerful exploration of a family and a people caught up in a time of violence and tumult. I recommend it highly. I hope you're enjoying the Arab Digest podcast. Since our launch in 2020, it's been listened to nearly 175,000 times in countries right around the world. So a big thanks to all of our listeners. 
You may have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East and North Africa. Would you consider supporting our independent voice through a small donation? Details on how to do so at ArabDigest.org. When you go to our website, you can also find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter, how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Choman. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And search our library of more than 180 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. (music) 